The first reading is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 to 21, which we found on page 1176. Ephesians 5, verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and songs of praise. Sing and make music for your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Here is the first lesson. gospel reading is from John chapter 15, um, starting to read at verse 26. This is on page 1084 in the Church Bibles. John 15, starting to read at verse 26. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. All this I have told you, so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they have offered a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. None of you ask me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I've said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment about sin because people do not believe in me, about righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. This is the word of the Lord. 
Let's bow our heads to pray. Father, we give thanks for the riches of your word and for the gift of your Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth whom you promised would lead us into all truth. So may he teach us your truth this morning. May he make us eager to learn and strong to put what we learn into practice in our life together. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, I've already said how pleased I am to be with you. Um, those of you who are expecting the full 45-minute sermon will be disappointed because uh, we decided that because there are lots of other bits in the service, this will just be a little uh, shorter sermon than normal. Uh, and for that reason, for those of you who uh, look mainly at um, sermon titles rather than readings, I confess that I'm not really going to be talking directly about marks of the fullness of the Spirit but I am going to be speaking primarily about three verses from our reading. So if you're the kind of person who likes to have the text in front of you, you may like to turn to John chapter 16, and particularly verse 12, but uh, I'll do a little bit of background first. I wonder whether you've ever been in a situation, perhaps at work in a team meeting, or maybe in a, in a family group, or perhaps a, a home group, and one of the group makes very clear that they've got some important news to share, but um, you get the feeling that it's not going to be good news. So picture the scene if you've never been in a situation like that. There are about 10 of you in the room, and the leader gets to the point where uh, he shares his news. And you can uh, hear a pin drop as he tells everybody that he's going to be leaving in a week's time because he's got to have a very serious heart operation and won't be around for the next six months, maybe ever. You can feel the atmosphere change. All kinds of unspoken questions hang in the air. Is he going to be okay? What's going to happen? I wonder if we'll ever see him again. How must he be feeling? What about his wife and kids? How are we going to manage? How, we, how will we survive without him? Emotions run very high. If you could put some litmus, something like litmus paper into the room and test those anxiety levels, they would veer to one end, purple rather than blue. Well, when Jesus spoke these words to his friends that uh, were read for us uh, by Keith a few moments ago, it was a similarly emotional, uh, emotionally charged setting. Some of you will know that it comes towards the end of a long section of teaching which follows the Last Supper in John's Gospel. In chapter 13, he'd washed the disciples' feet he predicted that he would be, be betrayed and that people, Peter would deny him three times. Like us, the disciples had lots of questions in their minds. Where exactly are you going, Jesus? Why do you have to die? When will we see you again? Why does it have to be like this? In chapter 14, he starts to prepare the disciples for his death and for the time that he'll no longer be with them. And he focuses his, his teaching on explaining to them that although he would be returning to heaven, to the place his father was preparing for him, 
the Holy Spirit would come. He would send the Holy Spirit. And if you turn back to chapter 14 and verse 16 following, he actually says, I will ask the Father, he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. And throughout this uh, section of teaching, we see, those of us who are interested in the theology anyway, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are working very closely together. In chapter 15, Jesus speaks about the disciples' relationship to him and the Father. I am the true vine and my Father is the gardener, he says. He challenges them about the importance of remaining in him in order that they may live fruitful lives. Their branches, he's the vine, and in order to be fruitful, he stresses the importance of that close, intimate relationship. At the beginning of chapter 16, and Keith did read this bit, look at it now. We'll see in verse 1 and 2 particularly that he warns the disciples there are some very difficult times ahead. They're going to be chucked out of the synagogue. Imagine hearing these words. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering a service to God. How threatening might that have felt? It's serious stuff that Jesus is engaging with here. And in the next few verses, Jesus continues this teaching about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 7 in particular. I tell you the truth, it's for your good that I'm going away. I reckon most of us, um, for those words, have resonances of our childhood. I'm doing this for your good. And for me, it was a whack across my backside or to be told to go to my room. It's for your own good, Andrew. But if that's your reaction to these words, then, then try to filter that out. Try to filter that out and take them at face value. Jesus is saying, it's for your good that I'm going away. Jesus always means what he said. That's not code. There's not going to be a locking into your room or a whack across the backside or a denial of whatever it might be that was your particular parental punishment. Jesus said, it's actually going to be better for you that I send you my Holy Spirit rather than that you have me with you physically. Unless I go away, the counselor won't come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And we know he did. And I suppose if you wanted a head, heading for what I want to, to, to encourage us to focus on this morning, it would be in struggling with some of the questions that I, with which I began this little talk and which I think were very evident in the disciples' minds, you know, the questions about, well, why, where are you going, Jesus, and why do you have to die, and when are we going to see you again, and how can we possi possibly manage without you? And the scratching of their heads that they must have done when, that when Jesus said to them, it's for your own good, and I'm sure they didn't fully understand, 
I think this approach of Jesus's helps us when we in our lives start to ask hard questions of ourselves and of God, particularly when tough things happen. Why have you allowed this to happen, Lord? I've been praying for years that this person would get better. Why have you let them die? I feel so anxious about this member of my family, that member of my family, the struggles I'm going through at work, what I'm going to do when I retire, how I'm going to manage financially, whatever it might be, the hard things that, if we're honest, come to all of us, the kind of questions that go round and round our minds and that sometimes we share with those who are close to us and who love us, that we find really difficult to answer. I think the way Jesus tries to handle the disciples' questions, spoken and unspoken, can help us in such circumstances. And so three things, two and a bit really, in the next five minutes, which I hope will be uh, something of an encouragement to us. What does Jesus teach here? Verse 12, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. It seems to me that Jesus is saying that he's not telling them everything that he could tell them. And he wants the disciples and he wants us to accept that he knows more than we know. But also that there's a limit to what we can absorb and understand at any particular point. And whilst that might to adult minds and intelligent minds seem either unkind or, or unfair or both, isn't that what happened to us when we were children by our loving parents? And isn't it precisely what those of us who are parents do with our children at different stages in their lives? Because we love our children, and because we know something of their capacity to understand and absorb and cope with knowing everything, we sometimes hold back from telling them the complete picture. It's kind of a need-to-know basis. And when a three- or four-year-old keeps saying, why, Daddy? Why, Grandpa? Why, Mummy? In the end, the answer is sometimes, because I told you so. <laughs> it's part of who we are as human beings to ask hard questions, but it's also part of who we are to have minds which can only cope with so much and which don't fully understand. Some of you will be familiar with the very familiar verses in 1 Corinthians 13 where St. Paul talks about knowing in part. We know in part. That's very much our experience. But St. Paul's promise is that although we may know in part now, when one day we meet Jesus face to face, then we will know fully and completely as we are fully and completely known. You may be compiling a list of questions that you want to ask the Lord 
when you get to meet him? I'm sure his answers will be ready. What we can be sure of is that the Lord God always knows and always wants what's best for us. The second thing I want to suggest is that when we don't know what to do, God does, and he'll show us. Verse 13, when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He won't speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. Well, there's elements of overlap in what I've already been saying. But the Spirit has come and he helps us to live our lives now and to follow Christ as his disciples. So when Jesus speaks here about guiding you into all truth, there are a number of things that I think he might mean. First, he he will lead us into the truth about ourselves. He helps us to understand fully who we are as his children, loved, precious in his sight, chosen, and chosen to be fruitful, as in John chapter 15. We are those who are of inestimable worth, and yet at the same time, we're those who let him down, those who sin, and who play a part in a sinful world. We are people in need of God's love and forgiveness. We're also Uh, those whom the Spirit helps to understand the world in which we live. One of the things that I always love when I come here is your logo about being a people of grace in the heart of the city. I think it's great. But what I also uh, like is the challenge of being a people of grace. What actually does it mean to be gracious practically, day by day, as I seek to live my life out out for the Lord. How should we live? How should we serve? What should we do? How will the Lord guide us? How will he seek to make his love better known? What are the values that we should live by? What do these mean about the way we spend our income or our time? How will it impact the key decisions we make as individuals and as a church family? The Spirit leads us into understanding the truth about the world and the way He wants us to live. And He also helps us to understand more of the character of God, what God is like, his love, his truth, his justice, mercy, grace, forgiveness, and so on. And whilst ultimately that's a mystery and we cannot know everything, the Spirit promises to teach us. He promises to teach us what it means to live in relationship with him, what he wants for our lives and how much he loves and cares for us. When we don't know what to do, God does, and he'll show us. And thirdly, and finally, and very, brief, very briefly, 
whilst when hard times come and we find it natural to ask all kinds of questions and we don't always have the answers, yes, we can perhaps trust that there is more to be known uh, in God's good time. And we can, I hope, trust and pray that God will show us how He wants to live through those hard times. Perhaps the hardest thing, though, is to remember what Jesus says in verse 14. Ultimately, He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. Jesus promises the riches of His grace to His children. And He promises to do so in a way which will ultimately glorify Him. Five or so years ago, uh, the daughter who's getting married uh, had uh, a real crisis. Susie was diagnosed with uh, uh, acute anxiety and depression. For about three years, she was off work and living at home. For quite a long time, uh, six months or more, uh, she struggled to get out of her room. She would say she struggled to get out of her bed. It was just awful. Just awful. I can only imagine some of the questions that she was asking, but for Ruth and me as her parents to see her go through something as awful as this was just deeply, deeply painful. I'm glad to say that she's getting married in the summer. And uh, although she's still uh, quite heavily medicated and regularly sees the doctor, uh, for the last uh, three or four months, she's got uh, a new full-time job and uh, is being transformed. I choose the words carefully. She is not she's not completely transformed, but she is being transformed. And uh, she's on the upward curve. It's been lovely to see all these things. And she would say that uh, God has been good to her through this hard, hard time. How glory is being given to Jesus as he works in and through her is still a mystery to me. I'm having to trust God for that. But that's ultimately what we all have to do. I'm going to leave it there. But I'm going to suggest we just pause for a moment and ask uh, the Lord in the stillness and the quiet just to come and particularly to assure us that His work, the work of the Holy Spirit in our individual lives and in our life together, despite our questions, despite our uncertainties and our doubts, is real, is certain, and will bring glory to His name. Thank you, Lord. Amen.